This is part two of a special episode, a conversation with Lee Cronin, professor of chemistry at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And this debate took place in January and was held on Kurt Jaimungold's Theory of Everything channel. You can find out more about that in the show notes below. Make sure you subscribe over there. And this audio conversation was uh, quite wide-ranging, as you can tell. This is part two of the two-part episode that we recorded, and I think it really gets to the heart and the meaning of what it means to be alive, how could we detect life elsewhere in the solar system, in the universe, and beyond. Well, I don't know about beyond the universe, but certainly beyond our solar system into the galaxy and other galaxies. And Lee's quite optimistic about it. Uh, And you'll see uh, some special questions in this episode uh, from the audience on Kurt's channel. Uh, We read some questions and took some some chat and feedback. Got a lot of views on his channel. And you can check it out, the video version on my channel as well, Dr. Brian Keating. And I hope you enjoy this special part two of two with Lee Cronin on Kurt Jemungle's Theory of Everything channel. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. And so I'm curious to to know why, if life is so abundant, and then you sprinkle in some Darwinian evolution, why isn't, you know, technological life abundant? And why isn't it more plausible than not? It seems like you're saying you're you're kind of a, a a life maximalist, but a UFO minimalist. So so tell me what how can you rectify those two things? Because it would seem to me, unless there's a no-go theorem against it, that maybe there is more hope. I get around that by saying I don't think life exists elsewhere besides the earth. And if it does, it's from the earth via panspermic processes. But but tell me what what could potentially uh forbid li- life from evolving technologically? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I'm going to say a couple of things. So I think, Kurt, if you want to go to assembly theory, we'll do that in a minute. So I think it's quite important, this story. But let me answer Brian's question. I actually, So I think, you know, yeah, there's a Scooby-Doo, you know, always the, the villain says, you pes- pesky kids. I'm going to say the reason why we can't see technological life is you pesky physicists, because <laughs> the universe is really big and things are accelerating away. And it's, you know, and sadly, um, you know, I'd love to break the, I'd love to understand more about the, the way the universe is and the speed of light and get arounds. But the fact is, there seems to be little indication that we can have wormholes and, and break the speed of light. And, and, you know, designing. As a quick clarification, I'm sorry to interject, Lee. Then when you yeah. say that life is abundant in the universe, are you not referring to the observable universe? Sure. I think it's abundant in the observable universe. We'll learn how to find it. And I think actually frustratingly, we probably will find techno signatures, uh, uh, you know, hints of them. And not just hints, hints that Brian and I will look at the data. We'll look at the uncertainty, the error bars. Your point is taken. I haven't forgotten. It's a very good point, Brian. And we will then go, well, the balance of here is like we will be it is possible remotely to get data uh, um, squeeze down those errors and know for sure there's alien technological life elsewhere in the universe. We could do it, okay? And don't let NASA and other people say it's not. We can do it. We can detect the Higgs boson. If we can look at the cosmic microwave background, we will be able to find technological um, signatures. But we but we need a better theory, which I'm trying to introduce. It might not be the right one, but it, I, I've got a feeling it's going that direction. But to answer the question about where all the technology is, There's a number of answers to that, but I want to say something quite profound. If time really is a thing, and let's say time is a commodity, and at the beginning of our local 
universe where the laws are. Now, I'm going to define time, and this is going to be like, I mean, I'm not a very good singer, but this is going to be like Brian hearing a really bad singer, and he's like breaking physics. But here, I'll try. At the origin of the universe, there was some kind of singularity, which basically we seem to be, we, we were kind of one quantumly connected, one particle, let's say. And through that causal aperture, the the the, the size of the electron, the what you know, the the the, the charge to, to mass ratio of the electron, the gravitational for all the forces were produced, all, all, all that was produced there, right? In that single point. Because people say the laws and all the constants, the constants are just contingencies, right? And so, so we have that. And then from that, that process, that point in time where the universe expanded, and I think, again, Brian has the history of the universe down. Like, I think if I remember, I'm studying you, that all the hydrogen in the universe was made in the first 20 minutes or something, which is just a mind-blowing uh, uh, kind of fact. And it's true. Shorter than the Big Bang Theory TV show. <laughs> exactly. That's a great. So now you've got this stuff, right, in time. Now, the reason is a clock is ticking. Now, at that time, you don't have enough states in the universe to actually produce life. It's kind of cool. Basically, you actually, there the Fermi paradox, and I am saying, I have to qualify this because I'm stealing this idea. I agree with it from Sarah Walker. So I, I, you know, I'm not very good. Well, I should be clear, I should steal more ideas, but but she's convinced me, and I and I also think it's true, it's a natural consequence of assembly theory. The Fermi paradox is not about the fact that we that we don't see the aliens just the we're looking back in time and at that time the universe didn't have the ability to produce technology so it's like a fermi filter and think for a second it's like oh shit we're looking back in time the universe didn't have the ability to produce technology at that time we have to look in a different way but actually i i'll push back again uh just to say that there was an epoch in the universe where you didn't need a hard rocky planet to sustain uh, room temperature liquid water. And that was a time yeah. about, you know, 8 billion years ago when the universe, Kurt, was at the temperature above zero degrees Celsius, which is, uh, you know, about, about 50 degrees warmer than it is in Toronto or Glasgow. Uh, I'm just trying to make you guys jealous. You'll visit me here in San Diego in January sometime. Um, so the universe could have liquid water for millions, billions of years until it become frozen water. Um, and so actually, no, there, there's a reverse filter. There, there's sort of a sieve. No, could... no, no, no. That's, that, that, I have to push back. That's quite nice. But I'm saying something very profound in terms of the, the number of states available. I don't care how much water is available. Who cares? What I care about is a combinatorial state space. Remember, I'm not a chemist here. I'm a mathematician looking at states. So you right. but, but, but Kurt, but Kurt, the, the amount I'm gonna have Sarah on my show next week, but but uh, and I'll ask her about this. But the the I mean, is a galaxy is one galaxy sufficient uh, spa, a state space to create technological life? Obviously, well, this is we, what we're this is what I think. I think the answer is no, right? And I what we just, let's just keep going yeah. with this arguing. There's okay. let's just make a con conjecture. I don't know, right? But isn't it interesting? You've got a smaller volume of the universe. Time is a thing, so you're not going backwards and forwards. So you have to, um, there's this causal chain of events. I don't know how delicate, it plays into your argument really nicely. What sequence of events have to happen in the first 20 minutes, the next 200 million years, the next 2 billion years to prepare the universe to be able to metabolize elements, fusion, right? produce objects that can then have enough structure, enough surface area for selection to occur over a period of time. So you might not, you might need stability of a few hundred million years with a certain gravitational force, but let's not add that on. I'm just saying 
hey, wouldn't it be cool if the Fermi paradox is actually just evidence the universe had not yet had enough causal history to produce life? We popped up as soon as it could. So we should like, oh, okay, let's now say, let's just make this very simple for ourselves and say life in the universe kind of started to emerge when life, let's say there's nothing special about Earth, happened quickly. So life was possible in the universe about 4 billion years ago. And so what we now do is we reframe our observations and we look around. I'm just making this up. It's a new idea I had today. Thanks to Sarah's idea and Brian's question. And your Did you come up with the metabolized yeah. elements? Because that's a cool line. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, yeah, I just made it up. I wouldn't steal it from Sarah. I would steal it from you. No, no, no. I, you could steal that from me. I just made it up just now. Um, and so you've kind of got this idea that basically um, you're creating this infrastructure for causation that, that, that allows you to go a bit further. And, and so what happens? I don't know. I mean, if only we had an astronomer who understood how to look back here, like if you redrew the line, so right, we're going to now restrict ourselves looking for a 4 billion year old light cone. And we look at the exoplanets, other objects. How does that reframe the search for life or intelligence? So, I mean, there's lots of ideas there. So the conjecture is, there is a filter that is just the universe wasn't capable of producing life until a particular time. Now it is, then technology, and then how does that go on? And that plays into redoing our error bars in the, in the, in the, in the Fermi paradox and in the Drake equation. And also, I hide my only shield, Brian, is I don't see anything magic on Earth. <laughs> so it's probably possible elsewhere. Because you Okay, know so what? that's a great point. Let me interject because you're, it's difficult to interject without interrupting you. I'm sorry, Lee. No, no, it's all good. It's your podcast. Uh, you, you beat us in. Come on. Yeah. Okay, great. You use many ands. And so I'm not sure if the sentence is complete or if it's run on. And I don't want to seem rude. Okay. So Brian, you just made a great point. What is an example of some other phenomenon that happens on earth that doesn't occur elsewhere in the universe? So water waves, maybe one. Well, there's maybe water waves in mountains, atmosphere. Okay. So... Given that, it sounds like there's nothing special about Earth's life. So why are you isolating Earth's life right. as saying, well, that's unique? On example. Yeah, if these, if these you know, it's like they want to have their, you know, primordial soup and eat it too. You know, they want to say it's ubiquitous. These processes are generic uh, and yet not seeing it. You know, it's more than just the Fermi paradox. And I will push back on Sarah gently with respect because uh, I love her work. Uh, uh, but but the fact is, you know, th those are almost borderline, you know, kind of ideas that I hear from intelligent designers too, you know, which is that the laws of physics, the state space of the laws of physics, the constants of nature, the mass of the electron, the uh, fine structure constant, all the things you talked about are implied. Um, those, you know, are, are can be conflated with, you know, some kind of low entropy state instantiated by a designer. I don't want to talk about that, except to say that I don't think that that pushes the that filter is very fine core fine grain and i will talk to her about it but i, I do want to say that again generically speaking these processes are ubiquitous so therefore the non-observation like that should go into the fermi paradox not that the universe is large uh that these processes are uh you know we we just detected uh you know we, we've detected uh helio seismological effects on other stars we've detected uh the existence of you know what we think are continental you know patterns so tectonic you know potential potentiality for te uh, tectonic activity which we do believe some believe are but all this kind of pushes things back like one of my big um, gripes against the SETI Institute, which I know and love, and I, I've had Jill Tarter and Seth Sostak, and I've donated to them, um, and, and I've spoken there, but 
you know, I started to get a little bit suspicious when a couple of years ago, they started shifting away from the uh, you know existence of live techno signatures to extremophiles here on earth. I don't think that necessarily answers or gets to the heart of the question, certainly not of extraterrestrial intelligence to know some smoky uh, the deep smoker has uh, you know, has bacteria, cyanogenic bacteria or, or prokaryotic type, whatever. That's interesting, but it's not aligned with ETI. That's what I care about. I mean, yeah, let's yeah, cut yeah. the... Yeah, let's cut the BS. What we really care about is making contact, as Eric says. You know, if you could short circuit and get to the laws of the 25th century and get to the other side, maybe we would pass the great filter, you know, as it's been called, and protect ourselves. And I, I happen to think that might be wishful thinking, uh, but I commend Eric for working on you know, a theory to perhaps unlock some of these uh, some of these portals, as he calls it. Um, but but nevertheless, I, I think again. Is there, you know, is there a rubric that you and I could agree on or, or disagree on? Uh, and I think the audience would like to know, are, are there, um, in other words, if you hear, you know, there's been an, a credible account, Lou Elizondo, past guest on Kurt show, um, you know, has claimed, you know, really very, very uh, high cr credence levels in the existence of extraterrestrials capable of technologically navigating across our galaxy. Cor correct me if I'm misstating or overstating. And the basic point as a physicist cares about, um, and that is, um, you know, non-God bless you, Lee, non-God bless you or whatever. You know, but Darwin bless you, Darwin bless you. When you sneeze, I have to say that. Uh, but, but he's making this, so, so can we, by laws of chemistry, physics, assembly, theory, whatever, can we say no? We actually shouldn't have the uh, you know credulity that Lee uh, that uh, that Luis has, uh, and instead we should he should update his priors based on these following chemical, physical, mathematical laws. Is there a way that we can do that for this? I, I think so. I think there's a way to do this. Let me just answer a little bit, and then I'll explain assembly theory. So yeah. I think what I think is likely to happen, if I mean I don't know. I mean like I have no. I'm a curious. I would. I think it's likely that we, if life exists in the solar system, some chemical life, life um, I'm I'm optimistic that we'll go and find some evidence with some, you know, sending dragonfly to Titan, the mass spectrometer on it. We're going to hopefully go to Europa and so on. We're going to hopefully do Origin of Life on Earth. And when I succeed, but don't get the Nobel Prize, I can write my other book. You know, I can get Brian to do a forward in it and all that. All the chemists hate it. And what we're likely to do, I think, is we should be looking for technolog te technological techno signatures. We're, you know, I mean, I think that the exoplanet. We're going to detect an exoplanet with oxygen on it, and so we found life, and that's just going to be baloney. So that that I agree with Brian. So let me just tell you briefly what assembly theory is, because assembly theory is actually a kind of a cool way of actually doing entropy but without labeling. And it's just about, as a chemist, I realized years ago that there are molecules on earth that are just weird, right? Weird molecules, like really complex. And so let's just take a molecule that, I, that is used a lot called taxol. Taxol is made by the Pacific yew tree. It's a, meta, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a secondary metabolite, which means it's made by protein, interaction proteins in the cell. And that molecule is really special because it's very good at um, killing vascularization of cancer tumors. So people get that and they, 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 they use it as an anti-cancer drug. Now to make this molecule, it's like got 62 carbon atoms, you know, a load of oxygen atoms, nitrogen and so on in this pattern. And this molecule has a molecular weight of about um, 852.66, something like this. Someone will go and check it now. It's the wrong molecular weight. <laughs> it's like, okay, like, I'll Google it whilst I'm saying. But it's a big molecular weight. And it's a fingerprint. 
And the way that molecule works is the way combinatorial chemistry works. That molecule is beautiful. It's like a Rembrandt, right? It's in its features. But chemists can make loads of it. So you can make literally um, 10 to the 23, 6.022 times 10 to the 23, and that's one mole. So you can have one mole of taxol. So that's 10 to the 23 identical copies. And that's made in biology on Earth. Human beings can make it in the lab. But if Brian and I did the math together and we said, right, well, we'll look at that molecule. We'll work out what is the probability that that molecule could form randomly in a plasma in the universe. It's basically one in a, a like countless, in 10 to the 100, yeah. right? Maybe more. That's just for one molecule. So if you find a detectable amount, you're like, oh, oh my God, this is like the biggest coincidence ever. So that's where assembly theory was born. And I realized that there's lots of molecules on Earth that pass the great filter. They are made by biology. And I realized they can make a detection system that detects molecules that are above that threshold of complexity. And that when you do random Miller-Urey and random stuff, get meteorites and look at the organic chemistry, they are way below that filter. They have an assembly number. And what assembly theory does is it says like, take your molecule, put it on a graph. What is the shortest route you can get from your atoms to that target? The shortest possible route, how many steps, right? So it's a bit like if you take the word abracadabra, if you were to make, if you've got A, B, uh, um, you know, C, R, A, how many steps would you need to make the word abracadabra? Well, you can do it in, in, in a much number the number of letters in the, in the word because you can reuse some parts. And so my conjecture is that assembly theory says it finds where there's memory or contingency in a chain. So it looks for lossless compressibility. That's kind of cool, right? It's a bit like a information theory, compression, Shannon, la, la, la. But it's just like, that. what is the shortest route to get there? Because like Brian, um, as an experimentalist, the data is more important than my feelings. That's right. And so, you know, it's like... <laughs> So I'm like Ben Shapiro. You just sounded like Ben Shapiro for a second. <laughs> yeah, I love <laughs> Ben Shapiro. Uh, and so it's really important that we understand that because it, it work, it's pervasive, right? Where people just think that, and chemists think that complex molecules, this is where the chemists, uh, they're, getting, they're beginning to change their view. And what I'm trying to say is the, the, the chemists don't, because they take it for granted, that there's complex chemistry. Everyone's saying, "Hey guys, it's not just RNA that's important. ATP is important." You know, that's my that's my joke, Lee. I say, you know, in, in in economics, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future results. It's like we have past <laughs> performance evidence here on Earth, but <laughs> that's no yeah, guarantee. Yeah, yeah. So assembly theory, what it does, it allows you, given a co complex molecule, you can work out the likelihood it formed by chance, and and that I think is fairly irrefutable. Although publishing that paper last year. Took me six goes, right? I sent it to nature. Why do you think that is? Well, because the, well, it took me, I sent it to nature, I almost got in, right? I sent it to nature, I got three reports back. Two said, wow. One said, can't be right. So I wrote back and, and so the nature, well, what do we do? And I said, well, we can ask the referee why it can't be right. So he said, oh, do that then. And the referee went, we said to the referee, why can't it be right? And the referee said in the second round, because it's impossible. We're like, okay, and this is like, I kid you not, right? This is a conversation we had with the editor. I said, but here's the data. Are you saying we fabricated the data? And the referee just said, no, it's impossible. And we, we went in this loop. And what actually happened is one of the referees fabricated a data from a paper 
to assert that we couldn't be right. That's how desperate they were. I got the evidence right. Come back. They said in this paper, it says that complexity is is already present in outer space, blah, 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 blah. And, and the editor read it, went, oh, reject again. And when I pointed to the editor, that the referee took the word complex mixtures have been found in space and changed it to complex molecules because they were so believing that complex molecules are a free lunch. Um, I then went to the fifth round to review and the editor by this point was like, just like, go away. We're not publishing. I said, no, we're gonna, I believe in the rule of peer review. I'm answering all your points. This is important. It's important we change people's views of complexity because Brian is on a really good side where he's saying, hey, I want the data. I know that nothing is for free. And the chemist in the middle saying everything is for free. Complexity happens. And I'm in the middle saying, no, I can count it and quantify it. And here it is. What actually happened? It was rejected, right? Because of, for, I won't go into it. I don't want to complain. I'm a very lucky um, scientist. I love doing the science. I just feel bad for the research group, but I got it published. I published it in Nature Communications. And that paper was downloaded. 27,000 times in five months um, because we presented the theory, the mass spec and all the evidence. We had a load of meteorites. We even got Scottish whiskey. And we proved that Scottish whiskey is evidence of life because there's complexity in the peak, right? We show it works. So we know we can fingerprint life on earth from molecules. Um, and so, it's, but we realized something more that assembly theory is about just thinking about molecules. It's about Every time you have a step on your path, on that you make a decision. Let's say you go down a street and you say, I'm going to go left today. You go left. You say, right, I'm going to go left again. Then I'm going to go right. I'm going to go left and right. And you find yourself in a very particular spot. That contingency is printed on your history, right? There's a lot of mathematics on that. And we find that this is the, the assembly theory that we generate. And I haven't spoken to Brian about it because Sarah and I are just finishing the paper. And oh my God, it works. And what do I mean by that? I mean that I can take a kilogram of sand and calculate the assembly of that kilogram of sand. And I can calculate, take a kilogram of E. coli and calculate the assembly. Assembly is a number like entropy. And entropy tells you the causal power of the object. And of course, the causal power of a kilogram of, a kilo, of E. coli is vastly higher than the kilogram of sand because the sand can do nothing. So well, what about the uh, assembly of rule 38, Wolfram's, you know, rule? Well, and I, I'm, you'll hear about this in a few weeks, maybe. But the problem with that is that is, again, a label system. So rule 38 doesn't exist outside of a von Neumann machine and graph paper and observer putting in the rules in. So yeah, so there's so the problem. There's a, and physicists get stuck with things that give complexity that aren't really complexity. It's just games with numbers, and and I think that I've got a little bit of work to do with that. And I think the Wolfram's ideas here are pretty cool. I think they're not they're not. The problem is with Wolfram, he traps himself in a line of thought and doesn't talk to anyone and thinks he's a lost genius. Bit like Eric, actually, and no one will talk to him. We'll talk to him. In fact, he's got a lot of good ideas that might actually be right. But I've it's kind of like, I've had not only have I talked to him and I've talked to Eric, I've talked to him and Eric at the same time. I'm the oh, only cool. I'd love to take part in that conversation because I maybe could bang their heads together. But yeah, we let's digress. Do it. Let's Assembly do it. theory tells you about causation, it's now measurable. And that's why I'm excited because we're going to start to roll this out in in inanimate objects and it will help physics. I think Newton screwed physics. Because screw, New, New, Newton, and this is a hell of a thing to say. I'm British, right? I love yeah, Newton. Right. You know, it's on our coins and on our notes and everything. But Leibniz understood 
assembly theory. And I've been reading philosophy for the last few weeks. If you read the monodology from Leibniz, you'll see that he understood assembly theory and that objects have souls. This cup has a soul. And you're like, okay, it's legon or panpsychism. Like, no, no, the soul is not in the cup, but it's in the causal structure of the person that made it, who made it, who made it, who made it. This cup is a fantastically improbable object that cannot have existed at a long line of cup makers. That's where the soul of the cup is. Okay, let's let Brian respond to what you've said. Well, you know, I think, I mean, it's unassailable to say that, you know, complexity begets complexity. And again, that Lee will take on intelligent designers with one fist, but he'll also, you know, take on chemists uh, with the other and say, look, we we have to address, you know, as, as uh, <clears throat> as uh, you know, uh, Roger Penrose calls the mastodon in the room, which is, you know, this surprising, you know, uh, feature about the universe that we can comprehend it. We tend to impose, you know, consciousness upon it and our definitions are contingent upon our causal history and how we were assembled, you know, and I think the ultimate theory of everything when it comes to uh, what Lee's working on will have to involve uh, the observer, which will undoubtedly then finally force him to get into fundamentals of, of quantum mechanics, which I don't think he can call chemistry. I'm okay with you calling, you know, entropy and thermodynamics chemistry, but I think, you know, the uh, elementary foundations of quantum mechanics, that's a stretch to call. I've always wanted to be a physicist. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, me too. But, you know, I, I lapsed and became an astrophysicist. Uh, but I think, um, you know, when we talk about how, uh, you know, this this can be used to to kind of, um, as I say, be quantitative, how we can get something out of it, deliver some value to the audience. Uh, certainly these are and the, and the less and the more flexible we are, I think the more can be understood, but maybe maybe to even narrow down and come back to the original definition of things. I think to have a taxonomy, you know, what, what is it that the, the name is not the thing? Uh, there's there's some principle like that, right? Um, and so so yes, describing things that are complex and are have originators in a mind that on the one hand is beautiful, it's elegant, it's it's simple, and again, in a in a in a, in a praiseworthy fashion, not in a in a childish fashion. On the other hand, I do think we have to then confront the ultimate, you know, question of, you know, is there does there have to be some mind at work behind the cup, behind the 747, behind the uh, the the DNA code? And I, I I think we you know we've agreed not to really get into this this notion, but I think it at some level we just get to this uh, an, a eventual chicken or egg and this Martin Bailey you know retreat, and I and I guess you know I, I think I think the ultimate you know uh, the ultimate benefit of this approach. Is is that it? It gives a plausible scenario for life to arise from inanimate objects. That's that's an ultimate, or it's a way to quantify when something is animate. Let's just say, or was created by something animate. Um, and I think you know to look at how we can do better and and maybe go further into which I think is really important. Uh, you know, is life abundant and technological? I think. Kurt's audience appreciates that. And I think, you know, we haven't spoken so much about that. Maybe we can talk about that. Um, you know, how and what could we glean from the search as a search, you know, and where are we going? Quo Vadis, you know, where are we going with, with the search? Is it important? Is it a good use of, of chemist time, of physicist time, uh, et cetera, to look at these uh, reported unexplained phenomena? Um, can that tell us something? Is this something that interests you? And and me and and maybe you know Kurt can can lead us in that path and and kind of 
Yeah, really. I mean, we're at a very interesting you know, point in time. And a lot of it has to do with people that Kurt's had on the show and that I've, I've tried to have on my podcast as well. Um, and I think that the, you know, kind of the abiogenesis argument is, is uh, you know, you've eloquently described it. Um, I think, you know, if we look maybe as Kurt, as an impartial observer, maybe we could say like, where are you, Kurt, in this discussion? Because I think you're a proxy for your erudite audience. How do we how, do, how are you feeling about the prospects of the ultimate question, life from non-life? And then we can talk about universe from non-universe. We can talk about consciousness from inanimate matter. And then we can talk about technological matter from conscious matter. But um, where are you sp sitting right now, Kurt? If we use Lee's definition of life, which is what begets some high assembly number, then it sounds like it's almost like panpsychism, panlifeism because it's a circular definition of life where, okay, well, what would produce that? Well, then we get down to the atoms, which produce and so on and so on. So it sounds like life is abundant. If we use the definition that life is what produces life. Well, well, let me qualify one second there. So what I'm saying is you have random events that basically um, increase in causal power and you, there's a phase transition to life, right? Life doesn't just appear magically, right? We've already, there is, but there's a causation in the universe, right? The universe does do some stuff before life. There's a phase transition because then evolution can do stuff like, which is just, you can, and what it, what can, and we could, there is a meaning to this, which we can come to. It's not panpsychism. I totally refute, well, no, let's be friendly to the panpsychists because there are interesting things there, but I think there's a mischaracterization. The panpsychists want something there, but I would argue they want causation. And they want, and they're, they're missing out on causation. So there's causation to there, and then there's biology, and then there's technology. So I'm, I'm, I'm. I don't think it's circular, but I think you're really right to push on it because I think your your listeners, your viewers, will be like, "Well, come on, it. What do I mean? I mean, rocks can through their random interactions can have memories, and those memories just randomly will be um, trapped in a causal chain, which will allow certain other processes to occur. It's not magic; it's contingent." Tell me if I'm understanding it correctly. It sounds like in your model, life is not binary. It's not alive or dead. It's actually a continuous Correct. spectrum. And Correct. if that's the case, then what I'm saying that there is no zero to life. There's no zero. I think life is a kind of island, right? Is this is why we have so difficult pinning it down? The physics. It's like, is this is my cup alive? No. Was my cup produced by life? Yes. Am I alive? Yes. I think so. Um, you know, so this kind of is, it's a movable feast in the way, in the same way, consciousness is kind of, we have more, so agency, we have maximum agency in our bodies right now, but Newton is still exerting agency over all of us because of what he did, that life form. And it's kind of cool. So yes, you're absolutely right. I think life is kind of a continuum and there's a phase transition to you have there is really a lot of causal power and you get something special with that. That phase transition is an intuition at this point. Is it formalized? We're formalizing it, yeah, and doing experiments. And I think that exactly it. There's a Nobel Prize there, the Nobel Prize there, the Nobel Prize. I mean, they're like everywhere. I mean- Let me talk about UFOs, if that's all right. Let me just ask one more yeah, question. Sure. Just on this. If you have an assembly theory and computation and all these wonderful things, um, could you have a BS detector? I mean, could you say- you know, now yeah. now you feed in some um, some left-handed DNA. I think that's the uh, non-stereoisomer uh, that occur doesn't occur in life that we know about. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, oh, look what I found. You know, would this then tell you 
that there there this there's some trickery and some jiggery pokery as you say i mean could, yeah. could could it tell that this is not and is that instantiated by you lee did you put in if you see a left-handed dna helix you know the guy's a fraud you know tell me how does that how would that be um, um, I, we it's a sneaky way of asking about the lab leak theory <laughs> yeah, well actually um it's not cheeky it's actually entirely appropriate so, uh, but maybe we don't need to go down there. Yeah, oh, please. But I, I want to stay monetized. <laughs> okay, good. Um, I use assembly theory, a very crude version, to show some plagiarism. So, because because plagiarism is the ultimate um, yes. Uh, yes. Um, kind of you know uh, commendation, right? And when Melina Trump gave her presentation to the Republican convention. She used a speech which was the same as Michelle Obama's speech. And it was like, they look the same. And I was like, oh, wow, let's take all the subjects of the sentences. And I broke them down. And with assembly theory, it'd be like, you know, um, oh, number one, I talked about my, you know, my, my mom, my, my country. And number two, I talked about my childhood. Number three, I talked about my dog. Number three, you know, you went through and you went, wow. When I, by the time I got to 14 and a match, I knew that that was plagiarism. Right, because the mm. the chances of that not being was like you know fourteen factorial or something, right? So it was kind of cool. It's like yeah, mm. so so you can use it as a BS detector, and and yes, you can use it to look for gen genetic material and look for motifs that are repeating, and and then you can see what engineering has been done and what evolution has done, and it should be possible to get get that because mm -hmm. entropy coarse grains it all out, assembly reassembles it. Okay, so now the next question will dovetail into what Kurt was just about to ask, which is, could there be an analog of assembly theory to apply to unidentified aerial phenomena? Kurt, is that, yeah. is that okay to ask? Sure. I'd also like to explain, re-explain, if you don't mind myself, to the audience, and then you can correct my explanation of assembly theory, because it, it's extremely important. Yeah, go, go, go. So Lee Cronin has a number. It's almost like Kolmogorov complexity. So those of you who know what that is, there are different forms of of putting a number to a piece of information to see how complex it is. And what you have in Lee's theory is you have elements that you consider to be atomic. So you can consider those to be axioms. And then you have certain rules of inference. Now those rules of inference are like the laws of physics, though this can also be applied to mathematics. And that's why I think it's extremely interesting because you can quantify how difficult a formula is to prove. Anyway, so you have, you have atoms and then you have rules of inference. And then you wonder what is the minimum amount of steps to get from the axioms to the stated formula? So for example, the word candy, if we consider the letters of the alphabet to be atomic, then the word candy's complexity is five. So you think, well, that makes sense. It's five letters. Yeah, because step one, you pull a C out. Step two, you pull an A out. But the word pom-poms, which is seven letters, is complexity of five because you P, okay, you pull a P out. That's step one. Pull an O out, pull an M out. Then you need to put another P, but great. We have the word palm already created. So that's that step is taken care of by simply duplicating the palm. So then we have another step for the S. So then that's five in total. Now, is that a correct summation? Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're hired. <laughs> great, great, great. Okay, and, and the, the reason this is extremely fascinating is because you can use certain instruments like mass spectrometry potentially to assess the complexity of far away molecules. And then you can see, well, look, H2O maybe has a complexity of four. I don't know, maybe five, whatever. It doesn't matter, two hydrogen, one oxygen. But a simple protein may have 400 steps, a simple protein. And thus, if you can quantify by looking through a telescope, the complexity of something far away, then perhaps you can say, well, it was produced by life. Is that correct? I, yeah, yeah. I can tell you something quick, it'll blow your mind. Don't have to use a mass spec, use infrared. 
So I came up with a, the, the Brian or like this, a non-gravitationally lensing complexity cloak. What the fuck is that? Well, sorry for swearing. Um, so, you know, black holes are black holes. But if you could make an object that would basically, so in the infrared, um, infrared um, radiation gets absorbed at specific lines. Well, all, all radiation gets at specific lines. Um, but I came up with a way of making molecules to store binary code in them because I want to leave a message for some aliens when the, the humanity is about to end, is to put it in the atmosphere. And what you could do is you have these lot, if you're able to say, right, I've got all this spectrum and I want to cover all of it, I'm going to design a molecule that absorbs here, 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 and I'll make it super light. There might be objects in the universe that are non-gravitational lensing complexity cloaks because they're light and they can absorb all that energy across and just re-radiate it some other way or be used. So it's like a, it's kind of like a Dyson sphere, but it's cooler because it's it's basically really dark over everything. And and what am I saying? The reason I was saying this to you, Kurt, not only was your explanation spot on, you're talking about mass spec, but you could also use infrared um, um, spectroscopy and a telescope to go and look for not just life, but technology that basically is showing itself in the in the infrared and UV and maybe X-ray, whatever. Okay, great. Now onto the UFO question. Brian, when you say that scientists have an incentive to find life in the universe and incentives via Nobel Prize and money, et cetera, I don't buy that per se. I think they have an incentive to find a certain form of life in the universe, but not life in general. And the reason is that life in general borders on what is considered to be woo or paranormal. For example, if you were to study UFOs and say, is there credibility to these, these reports? That's almost not done besides a few individuals like Kevin Knuth, for example, because I, I, I think almost none of us, I, I don't think any of us are actually pursuing the truth, including myself, which is why I don't like when people say this channel is for truth seekers. Almost none of us care about the truth per se, because the truth can be extremely hard. So we care about it in a certain bounded fashion. So we also care about our reputations. We care about not sounding like these insensate, decerebrate rednecks, which is what the people in the academy generally think of those who who consider the UFO reports to be real. They they generally consider them to, and let's be honest, they consider them to be kooks. And I think that academics generally care much more about either sounding intelligent or not appearing to be inane more than they care about the truth per se. And so it's it's extremely bounded by their by their place in a social hierarchy, by their place among their peers. They don't want to be ostracized. It's anathema to analyze UFO reports. So that's why I say I don't buy when you say that, well, we have an extreme incentive to find life in the universe, a certain type of life, I agree. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think largely that is accurate, although I will say in my defense, you know, I did join the Galileo project with our mutual friend Avi Loeb, uh, specifically for this reason, not as a researcher, but as a member of the external oversight board, because I actually don't think they need my help as an observational astronomer. I'm, I'm pretty good, but, you know, Harvard uh, is not exactly hurting for for money, and you know they can certainly raise funding, especially when you have the you know uh, former uh, chairman, the longest serving chairman in Harvard's history in the astronomy department at the at the helm, who's you know Joe Rogan's appearance blew up the internet and uh, has has uh, you know number five bestseller um, you know last year in the New York Times list. So I don't think they need my help, you know, kind of necessarily doing the research. I do think they can always use help uh, holding them to account. And, you know, if I, I told this to Avi, you know, I wouldn't have called it the Galileo Project. I think it's dangerous when, you know, uh, astronomers begin uh, by, you know, kind of bringing up the names like Bruno and, and Galileo and, and persecuted 
figures in history, I think that's a fraught, perilous endeavor. And I think I would be, even that is sort of a belying a bias. In other words, his, his claim is that just like Galileo, uh, suffered from and the inability of the powers that be, the funding agencies of this time, the the uh, Venetian Doge and, and Senate and and other agencies to at first look through in the Catholic Church later on to look through his telescope and and see for themselves the as if that would have proven anything. I mean, just looking through a telescope proves nothing. It's the connection of the human mind and the formulation of a hypothesis and evidentiary data that could disconfirm his hypothesis. You know, Galileo had many blunders, Kurt. Uh, I'm pleased and privileged to be working with uh, with uh, Jim Gates, Carlo Ravelli, Frank Wilczek, Fabiola Giannotti, and uh, my good friend from uh, from uh, graduate school, Lucio Picciarillo, on the first ever audiobook version of any of Galileo's book. And it's Oh, that's dialogue. interesting. And I also yeah, didn't so know that that was the genesis of the word Galileo in the project. I thought it just meant I'm going to be looking out like Galileo looked out. No, no. I mean, I, I think the project's really dangerous. I'd like to kind of push back on you. I mean, not push back. I'd like to reassure you. I mean, I can't speak for Brian. Just a second. Just a second, Lee. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just want Brian to finish because I, I interrupted him. And then, so please finish it's Brian okay, and, yeah. then, and then leave. Kurt's used to me interrupting Punch him. him. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so we're translating Galileo's book. We have the rights to the first ever audiobook for Galileo uh, with a foreword by Einstein. And uh, that's read by Frank Wilczek, winner of the Nobel Prize in 2004, and Jim Gates. It's a, so what does it say? It says Galileo was wrote the, the, the definitive treatise on the scientific method, on what you're supposed to do with evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in that very book, he makes a catastrophic confirmation blunder at the very end on day four it's a trialogue between these three characters i'm one of them carlo Ravelli's another one and my friend lucio's the other and we go about and we're trying to disprove uh, uh galileo's character salviati is trying to disprove uh the uh the the earth-centered notion of the universe that's held by simplicio the simpleton uh who is espousing the words of the pope uh, that the earth is the center of the universe. And then I'm playing Sagredo, the kind of knowledgeable lay person who's interpreting between them. And Galileo is a phenomenal writer, uh, but he goes through and describes these things in such loving detail that even I become convinced when he goes about and says that the tides on the earth are proof that the earth is going around uh, the sun, that's complete balderdash. We know that's not correct and it would take Newton to do it. And his argument is very simple and persuasive. It uses data. It would have gotten accepted by nature probably if, if nature had existed, not like you know Lee's travails. Um, but his argument is that you've got this, you know, you've got this object that's going around the sun. Here's the sun over here. And here we've got tides on the earth. And uh, as, as it goes around the sun, it orbits and the tide slashes around. And that's why we have tides. It's totally wrong. The tides are caused by the lunar gravitational force, the tidal force, quadrupolar moment of the lunar gravitational force field. Nothing to do with our motion around the sun, really. And yet it's incredibly persuasive. And so if you took the lessons of absolute objective history and you say, like, should we have listened to Galileo? No, you throw out that book. You throw it out. You say it's nonsense, even though that he brings up relativity for the first time in human history. The notion of relative motion does not affect the laws of nature, which we now call Lorentz invariance. These are foundational things. And yet the summary of the book is totally wrong. The conclusion of the book is totally misproven. And he didn't use the best evidence at hand. So uh, look for that coming soon, hopefully on Galileo's birthday in February. But this is all to say when it comes to when it comes to Avi's project, Avi Loeb's project. Um, 
I think they need oversight more than they need my insight, which is to say that I think the, the first reaction that we have to have is skepticism because we do want to believe. I think if we all go back to our 12-year-old boys, when we were 12-year-old boys, forget about funding and, and I'm going to lose my, my, my status as a chair professor or Lee's going to lose. No, we're just little boys and we're, we're playing with that little pebble on the beach, like Newton said, and we're looking for a shinier pebble. If we were to discover that, I mean, it raises the hair on the back of my neck that there was extraterrestrial intelligence. First life, you know, I, I have my misgivings. I've talked to Lee about that. We'll talk about that some other day, but just about slime mold on the planet Enceladus is, or on the moon Enceladus. I don't think that will make as big an impact as, as Lee does, but let, let's leave that aside. Let's just talk about UFOs. I don't want to believe, I want to have evidence. And I think if you, if you bury your head in the sand, you won't get evidence. So I have to say, and I hope this is true of Avi too, uh, that we are kind of the boy, boy, the 12 year old boys sitting on the on the bed, not being able to fall asleep at night, looking up at the stars. We do want to know the truth, uh, but we want to have evidence for it as mature men, as scientists at this very moment. So anyway, Lee, you were going to say you've got some problems with with uh, with the project. And I'm happy. Again, I don't speak for them. I'm on their external advisory committee. I think it's important to do, but I am predisposed. It's like the bets that Stephen Hawking used to make with Kip Thorne. He would bet against Hawking radiation ever being, you know, validated. And uh, so that if he lost the bet, you know, he'd have the thrill of intellectual superiority being correct. <laughs> uh, so what say you, Lee? Yeah, I mean, it's no big, it's no big deal. I'm, I think I'm, I've got a lot of sympathy for Kurt's position uh, or, or kind of um, worry about where we are as scientists look for UFOs. But I think that I know Avi very well. He's great, but he's playing a very strange game here, I would like to say. He's kind of saying, oh, the scientific establishment's not ready for this. I'm a genuine contrarian, and I'm just going to basically come up with these things. I'm being ignored. No, he's just making stuff up, right? Making like what? stuff up. What, what, what is he making up? A theolocution with Leon Cronin and Avi Loeb is about to be booked. We got a plan. <laughs> yeah, so what I mean by he's making stuff up, he's making up a, a false argument about... Um, that people are kind of, you know, when it comes to this interstellar object that came through and he was just, he was saying why it could be alien space junk. Sure. It could be all sorts of things, but, it, but we were trying to understand what the characteristics of trajectory were telling us. So he's kind of making up stories, which are fine. I don't mean he's fabricating stuff. I mean, he's saying a narrative and I'm wondering why is he making that narrative? What does he have to gain? other than some kind of, you know, fame and notoriety and I'm going to be downtrodden by the establishment. Because if I suddenly said to Brian, hey, Brian, we've just found wormholes. I saw it over there. Look, wormhole over there, wormhole over there, wormhole over there. And, and then Brian says, Lee, you haven't got any wormholes. You just make, you know, you haven't got any date. And I'd be like, you're just beating me up, big professor, you know, and I think it's a bit like this. So what I, I'm really glad that Brian's I mean, that, on the That is side. kind of borderline ad hominem, Lee. I have to point that out. I mean, I'm, I love Avi. I fight with Avi. But but that seems like impugning his impugning his character almost. You can disassociate yourself from it. What I'm trying to say, to, to so it's not clipped out of context, is that I like the idea of searching, but I there is this. So what I'm trying to say, there's this cultural vibe going on right now. Our culture is changing. People are asking questions. What are these things that the Pentagon has released? What is the probability of us this happening? Mm -hmm. And and I'm saying that we don't. We could play together. I would love to help Avi be successful. I, it doesn't. I don't think it's the. We, I don't think the establishment is against him. I don't think even I'm in the establishment. Nor Brian. We genuinely want to know, and I do agree with you that there is some 
we are putting we could put our careers on the line if we get it wrong but actually in science you have become better scientists the more you're wrong and yeah, what i'm saying here great. is abby's adopting an extreme viewpoint where he may not allow himself to be wrong and it's not an ad hominem i'm not saying he's anything bad i'm not saying he's doing anything dishonest i'm saying he's making a narrative well let's be precise so i had him on my show <clears throat> and it was a wonderful episode and this is long before i decided to join and i said avi i don't believe that you believe this is real that this omuomua is an extraterrestrial and he said why but i am and and i said because if you did you happen to have access to uh, a, a resource that's highly complex has a lot of uh, has a lot of assembly behind it called yuri milner who is a russian billionaire and he's showered upon uh, you the potential as a leader of of the breakthrough starshot uh, prize one of the leaders uh, this tremendous resource so instead of sending you know 10 to the fourth uh, cell phone cameras to proxima centauri b why don't you send one of them at, you know, not even half the speed of life, not even 10% of the speed of just, you know, three, 4% the speed of life and catch up to a more And you know what he said? He said, no, 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 we don't need to do that because when Rubin Telescope, which is the Vera Rubin uh, uh, Observatory in Chile, <clears throat> which is going to be a phenomenal instrument, it's designed, it was the original name was the Large Scale Synoptic uh, uh, Survey Telescope to survey the whole sky with a huge cadence very quickly, looking for objects that are anomalous, that could do, and he says that's one of the dream machines for discovering. We already discovered one of them using pan stars on Hawaii. Um, so we're gonna discover millions of these things. I said, well, Avi, you know, I don't know if you know about this, but you know, like, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, things happen only once, you know, there's an N of one problem that we talk about. And what if this, yeah, what if they are abundant? And what if there are forces that conspire against in our solar system, just particular, not to the cosmos, to our solar system, maybe the lunar, you know, so tidal solar, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and it makes these objects very, very unlikely to ever be seen again, even though they're abundant. Wouldn't you want to catch up to the only one with all the resources you have? And he was sort of agnostic about it. That gave yeah. me some pause. And that's one of the things I'm going to push back on as an external advisor. But I, I would, you know, and I love you, Lee, but but I don't think he's doing it for fame. I mean, he has an ego that's uh, well known. Um, he's He has trouble controlling, um, you know, sometimes his passions for what he does. I think he's doing an incredible, valuable service. But I just want to talk about from the perspective of as an observational astronomer. Can observational astronomers provide information in the way that you've been using it? about this phenomenon. Uh, in other words, we survey the sky in all wavelength bands, 24 seven around the earth from Antarctica, where I've been twice for two months of my life, uh, and, and uh, to the North Pole, to space. Now we've got JWST. Um, what would it convince a believer to give up the uh, the expectations. In other words, Carl Sagan said, lack of evidence is not evidence of absence or absence of evidence. So we can't, but we can't, we also have to admit we have conserved resources in finite time, which is the most prominent of all resources. So let me just come in quickly. So I completely agree with all characters, right? And I know Abby is great. Uh, all I'm trying to say is, um, we, I want him to help. I want him to succeed. So exactly. I, I think my the only thing I would comment here is say, how can we help you? Let's help. Let's help you do this. Right. Whatever yeah. you think the narratives are, capturing the day. Yeah. I do think we have a responsibility though, and it's not ad hominem. It is kind of a bit way in this polarization in the time of COVID elections. We do have a responsibility for correctly framing the arguments. So we're not leading people down the gar up the garden path. That's the only point I'm getting at. So you mean being too it. optimistic or being too high salesman? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. That's all I mean. Nothing else. Everything else is good. So what I would say to Avi is like, how can we help you? What I would say to Kurt is like, 
what do you think science, science, mainstream science is doing enough of? You're finding frustrating because you know I'm I'm a I'm a cheap scientist in the regard that I want to know why I'm in the universe. I want to know why I'm here. I want to have meaning. If there are aliens out there, I want to know. It's not just the right type of alien. Any will do me. Any evidence. Um, and and I we and have I to talk hear, about I that. Feel your getting meaning from science and meaning from life in the universe. That might have to be a part two, uh, Kurt. But but anyway, yeah, I know we both want want we want evidence, right? We don't want to just you know yeah. just ma marginally, and we only have finite amount of time and and intellectual time. But don't forget, you know, uh, our forgetting curve, you know, is peaking. I can tell you from experience in a few years you're going to have trouble remembering your kids' names and, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, no, that'll stop. But, <laughs> uh, but, but we only have so much time for attention to pay attention to things of, 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 of great import to us. So I, I, you know, I guess the, the subject is what, what else should we be doing? We being astronomers, Avi's not going to build, you know, a, a large Hadron Collider squared, you know, to look for uh, interdimensional aliens, you know, manipulating wormholes to get here. Right. He's, he's an astronomer. He's a theorist, by the way, he's not an observer. So, so I think he needs help. Uh, I think the, the, you know, having you involved, you know, from that perspective, but then how do we translate the signatures from assembly from, you know, can be how do we translate that into an actionable metric that will allow us to reduce our uncertainty, getting back to our rubric at the beginning of this conversation. Well, now let me answer we... to one direct thing. I think we can do this with image data and time series data. And hmm. one of the things that would be very interesting is like, if you take any given image on this dimensionality, and let's say, I mean, Kurt, you've got assembly in one second. It's brilliant, right? You can apply the same thing to two-dimensional images and also time series images. Of course, you have to define your axioms precisely. Like right. when you're looking at how this image image can be created. Like it's very rare you see like a straight edge in nature. It just doesn't happen, right? You're, so you're looking for Yeah, edge. I mean, and so I was, I think that's right. And I, I, I what I would say, um, Kurt, quickly is I've looked at these Pentagon images and I spoke to someone who was responsible for releasing some of them. And I was like, are you just trying to basically, are you just, were you bored one day or did you need more funding or something? Why did you do it? And they were like, no, actually, we genuinely think public paid for this data in a way and we're just throwing it out there. So when I, when I try to get out of them, what they thought, they wouldn't tell me. So what do you think of these images? I mean, you must have, I've looked at them. I've listened to people on podcasts, on Joe Rogan's podcast in particular, and looked at the data. And there's all this mischaracterization of different people looking at different data sets and saying things like there's this object that I think Brian you've talked about this 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 uh this tic tac that went from supposedly you know um very high up to 50 feet off the ocean in like a second um what do but Kurt you have a look at this data what do you think of it do you think it's compelling or or you, are you frustrated about the quality or, or, or what what is your opinion I think it's sad that people hold these as as evidence of UFOs because I don't think they are necessarily. I think that they're extremely poor evidence. And what about sightings? What about what about uh, eyewitnesses? That, 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 so that's why them? all of it has to be looked at. So when someone, mm -hmm. if someone is to tell me that Bigfoot exists and I ask for footage and then they show me some pixelated video, I don't think that that's great evidence for Bigfoot. Now that in tandem with a variety of stories from people who we would think of as credible in any other situation, that in tandem with, let's say, a rape trial, we would send someone to jail based on two or three witness testimonies. And yet we have a team of people who are extremely credible, who testify to the strangeness of this phenomenon. And then we don't, we think, well, perhaps their eyes are misleading them. Well, I don't think that's reasonable. 
So I think it's yep. strange. I don't find any single one of the videos to be compelling. I find the set of videos to be somewhat compelling that there's something strange happening, but I find the total set of, I, I'm putting evidence in scare quotes here of evidence of UFOs to be interesting. And I also don't believe that we want to believe in UFOs. I know that you said that, Brian. I know, well. I want to believe in, I want to have evidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, you also believe. mentioned that we have this need to believe in external life. And I don't think that's true. For me personally, I hope that all of what's happening with UFOs is false. Well, Lee said something. Sorry, Kurt. That, uh, well, I'm just afraid of the implications. And I think that anyone who seriously thinks about this perhaps should be, because it may indicate that we're not at the top of the food chain. It may mean that we don't mean what we think we mean in terms of our place in the universe, our purpose even. I feel the same way about the prospects of hell. I don't want to believe in hell. Not that I do, but I don't want to believe in it. In some ways, I don't want to believe in God. In some ways, I find comfort in that consciousness ends. So there's so many beliefs that people say, well, people have a need to believe in, in God. People have a need to believe in UFOs. Some do, some don't. And I think that if you seriously thought about UFOs, perhaps Perhaps you would want to believe that they don't exist. When I say UFOs, I mean, obviously UFOs exist. The alien life that's supposedly behind right. it is what I'm referring to. All right. Well, I think that exemplifies why you're one of the best in the business, Kurt, and what you do on this on this channel, uh, and that you have uh, this, you know, kind of uh, humility, epistemolo epistemological humility, uh, but you also have uh, tenacity, and that is a rare combination. Um, I, I think, you know, one one nice place maybe to wrap up, and, and you know, Lee, Lee is often, I, I claim in a good sense, you know, my, my belief fundamentally is that no one's an atheist. Everyone has a religion, you know, for some, even the, that don't go to, you know, church or synagogue, you know, that religion, as I documented in my first book, you know, losing the Nobel Prize, it is often the Nobel Prize. And this is kind of a, a kosher idol, you know, that, yeah, it doesn't cause that much harm. And yeah, funding decisions are made on it. And, you know, Lee's mentioned it more times than I have today. And it's obviously, you know, top of mind for many scientists and, and Zygazun, hopefully he would win it. I don't have anything against the people that win it. I've interviewed a dozen of them on my show, but on the other hand, um, you know, there, even lack of a religion, secularism, um, I think that there is a religion of scientism, which is that uh, science can provide meaning. And I, I'd like to push back on that. I'd like to explore what Lee and you think, Kurt, about this very notion. In other words, uh, the word science in, 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 uh, in, in, in Greek uh, means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. You know, sapien means wisdom. You know, one who knows that he knows sapienism. I, I talked about this with Lex Friedman on the podcast that just came out. And look forward, by the way, to Lee Cronin, who inspired me, you know, to, to, to you know, get connected to Lex again. Uh, you know, Lex uh, hosted Lee before me. And uh, Lee helped me prepare a lot for my episode because he was on Lex's show and he'll hopefully have that episode out soon too. Might have been, yeah. allegedly. We never I, know. I can't wait to see that one. But, <laughs> you know, I talked about this, you know, that that I don't get any meaning from science. I, I think scientists, science is intrinsically, inherently, you know, we may have curiosity and the motto of my channel is ABC, always be curious. Uh, but curiosity and wisdom don't necessarily go together. And I documented many times, you know, Nobel laureates that were Nazis, you know, and had great knowledge and used their knowledge of of, of chemicals and, you know, forefathers, you know, Fritz Haber, you know, Lee, Lee could tell you way more about Fritz Haber, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just evil, you know, and, and he was a Jew and his and his and his, uh, his Zyklon B eventually led to the gassing mm. of many of his own family members. So anyway, don't look to science for wisdom. So if you can't look into it for wisdom, why do we look to it for meaning? So Lee, uh, I can I can give you a quick answer, but maybe Kurt, okay. it's your show. Whether you want to go first, yeah, yeah. 
here's what I suggest. I suggest that we take a bathroom break and that Brian, you check with your wife, see if it's okay. If you keep talking for a little while longer and leave with whoever you have to speak to as well, because there are some audience queen. questions. He has to talk to the queen. Right? There are some audience questions we haven't gotten to. Oh yeah. And yeah. I'd like to get to those. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got a 25 minutes. This just in my wife says 25 more minutes. I'll take a, a two minute break. Yeah. Yeah. And also quickly before we go. So yeah. Lee, do you have anything to promote? I'll make this transition smooth. Once we edit this, do you um, like a podcast no, I mean, channel or something? No, I'm, 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 I, I, I'm, I promote clubhouse. My, You're on a clubhouse a lot. And my, I mean, I, I, what am I promoting? I'm, I think that, um, I just want people to kind of ask more questions in an unframed, in, in an unframed way and, and know that they can get framed. You know, I, I have a, I'm, for me, we'll, we'll talk about when we come back from break, but yeah. I genuinely love not knowing and then finding a little dent and then getting something. Yeah. It's like yeah. climbing a hill. Okay. So not, yeah. the, the answer is no, he doesn't have anything to promote, but you, <laughs> okay. should, you, should, <laughs> you should go and look Thanks, at right. uh, his TED I talk. Need, his... I, need some, I need to go to the toilet as well. Yeah. 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 Cause I want to just promote right now and then let's go to the washroom. So people yeah, can click promote. on this. So Brian has losing the Nobel prize as a book. You also have into the impossible, which is a book as well as a podcast. And the links are in the description. I have purchased both of them. Additionally, Brian, your interview with Lex Friedman just came out either today or yesterday. So that's fresh. And Lee, you have a TED talk and I believe, I believe an upcoming Lex Friedman podcast interview, hopefully. Allegedly. I'm not saying anything. Brian spilled the beans, not me. On Lex's podcast, we have Lex has an image of me and Lee talking on my podcast. So it's definitely coming out. People who are watching, just click on those links and look up Lee and Brian's work. See you soon. Yeah, back in a minute. You should know that releasing in just a couple hours is the Stefan Alexander interview. And that one, we talk about matrix models and string theory. It's super interesting. Look forward to that. It's premiering in about three hours. Stefan Alexander, coincidentally, or perhaps not coincidentally, is one of Brian Keating's best friends, if not his best friend. So are you at home or are you at the office? This is my home office. Oh, wow. I'm actually... I'm actually, in fact, in the, in the corner there, that is a cellular automata running in 3D in my LED cube. That's interesting. In fact, it's Conway's game of life. Uh, uh, You've incorrectly implemented boundary conditions because I'm rubbish at that. Um, uh, uh, my, interesting. Okay. My lab is moving. The next week, we've been in Glasgow. I'm in the, old, in the chemistry department, which is a lovely old building, but it's not quite fit for purpose. And um, I'm moving my team onto a new floor. And we've got um, all these fume hoods all kitted out for the digital chemistry kit. So the, the dream experiment that I wanted to build 10 years ago will be constructed in March. And we have the assembly meter. So you never know. By April 2024, we might have the answer or an, an answer. But uh, yeah, so, but I, so I've been doing a lot of work at home, obviously, with COVID. We've all been trapped, but now COVID is almost hopefully cross whatever. Unless, unless the person who wrote COVID, I'm joking, has updated the firmware. <laughs> I saw that on, so it's like there's, there's lots of jokes at the moment about that. You know, the problem, with, you know, I was listening to some of your jokes, Brian, but was it someone about the problem of Omicron if we don't solve it now? You know, what comes after Omicron is pi, and that just goes on forever. Ah, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? Oh, it was on a it was on a podcast. I heard a, a UK political podcast um, uh, called The Bunker. 
So all a load of left wingers. We what we're sad about Brexit. I mean, I'm sad about Brexit, but I'm, no politics here. Okay, so let's get to some audience questions. Also, sure. well, another time we can talk about free will and time. We started oh, yeah, off yeah. with so that, and I'm so interested. We can solve we can solve time, consciousness, and free will in one easy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, briefly, quickly, Lee, when you said that time is fundamental, I don't know if you actually said that, but when you, you were talking about entropic time is what we normally think of as physicists as, as precipitating the arrow of time. And you're saying that, well, that may be the wrong way of going about it. So are your views more aligned with Lee? Because Lee believes time to be fundamental. Which briefly, Lee, if you don't mind. Oh, sorry, I Lee as in Lee Smolin. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I first met Lee Smolin and I told him my theory of time. He said, oh, that's my theory. And I'm like, Wow, our names are both Lee. Uh, yeah, so I mine is slightly more dramatic in that. Um, remember, I'm a professional idiot, Regis idiot, and what I mean by that is that um, I don't get confined by discipline boundaries. So it was when I first told Sarah my theory of time, she was just like, "This is just can't be true," you know. This is just. But all I'm saying is that there is no such thing as space. There is time. Okay. And from and time creates space, right? In some mechanism that we don't really understand. And um, that breaks in everything we need. I tried to argue with Sean Carroll about this, but he didn't even want to argue. He said, no, you're just wrong. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, he said, well, my theory is better. Time can go forward and backwards. And I'm like, that breaks causality. So time is primal. Time creates space. And um, and and there is a finite amount of time that has existed in our current universe, right? That doesn't mean there aren't things outside our universe. And, uh, And it works a bit like that. And that's why assembly helps us quantify that through assembly is almost like looks at the degree of asymmetry since the beginning of time that's recorded but i can i can budge on some of it but that's it in two or three sentences yeah we'll talk about that we'll perhaps have another podcast and so people who are watching if you have questions for brian and or lee leave them below okay brian do you have any quick comments on the nature of time before we get to the questions from the audience well, I think, you know, time again is one of these things that, you know, we kind of know it when we see it. It's it's like, you know, what does it feel like to be a bat? You know, Nagel's question, you know, it's always just like, we don't know. Uh, <clears throat> and I find it uh, sort of interpretable in the sense of we know it when we feel it, we know it when we see it, we have biological clocks turning grayer and grayer kurt doesn't know that yet uh but but someday he will lee uh we take comfort that his uh, diminution and beauty will only only uh, catch up to our well story. you look like buzz lightyear man like that's a huge compliment someone in the lex comment said that and i thought man that's exactly right and you're an astronomer as well and lee you're a great looking guy <laughs> yeah i remember I when i saw you i'm like this is a good looking guy i don't want to be on the same podcast as him <laughs> lee you're a good looking guy too brian yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> but that means he lives in a bubble. You know, doesn't, you're doesn't power, more, you're a powerful looking guy, Brian. I'd say that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I do have a strong aroma. Well, I, well, I'd rather be. But OK, never mind. <laughs> so it's time. You know, I had talked about this with Frank Wilczek on, on my Into the Impossible podcast. I said, what is time? You know, just like I asked Lee, what is life? Um, yeah, I asked uh, other people, hoping to have Philip Goff on. I'll ask him, what is consciousness? You know, it's like we know it when we see it. Uh, Frank said to me, Wilczek said, you know, time is what clocks measure. All right, thanks a lot. You know, it, yeah, but anything could be a clock. So I think what's interesting is to pursue the path that Lee has pursued. Uh, you know, what is the simplest molecule, you know, chemical <laughs> that can form yeah, with, with inspiration, with direction towards evolutionary purposes? And he has simulations that you can see in his TED talk about. It's brilliant. Um, I think uh, there's an experiment done at NIST 
And I'm going to have uh, Nicole Halpern Younger on, who's a brilliant scientist at NIST in Maryland. And she has a new book called Quantum Steampunk, uh, which is really delightful, kind of in the vein of a Roger Penrose, uh, Emperor's New uh, New Mind, uh, in which she talks about, you know, what is the world's simplest clock? And on my channel, I make explainer videos. And one I did is what is time and, and, and how can you understand time um, by making the world's simplest clock? And what is a clock? Something that ticks. Okay, well, what is something that takes? Well, it has quantum states. And I think the revolution that uh, would be interesting for another podcast, maybe Lee and, and Kurt will come on my podcast, maybe with Avi Loeb, we can have a, a knockdown drag out a conversation, Lee Smolin, I just get everybody in there, mosh pit, uh, is to talk about, well, what are the quantum implications? You know, we're, there's quantum thermodynamics that's coming to the front, things like Szilard entropy and, and stuff that Lee knows about that I'm just learning about. I think these are all really fruitful. And I wonder how that could feed into things that Lee is working on. But yeah, for now, maybe um, you want to talk about uh, meaning from science or do you want to talk audience questions? I want to do, I want to make sure that we answer all the audience questions. Yeah, yeah, let's get to the audience. So this one comes from Sneaky Toaster. Question. That was my kids. That was the, my first choice for my middle child's middle name. So the question is, Eric Weinstein and others are advocating for the irrefutable data the government has on UAPs, UFOs to be released to the science community. Should the science community be granted access? Well, I've pushed back with uh, respect to Eric. I've told him on clubhouse chats on my, you know, what, what do you mean? Like the data, like data is the data, of the Hubble deep field. Like if there are aliens, you know, in the universe, then, you know, there's uh, 10 to the fifth or 10 to the fourth galaxies in the Hubble ultra deep field, then, you know, there's probably an awful lot of aliens in there, you know, go, go for it. But, but, but I wonder, you know, is that really true? There's data again, the Hubble deep field tells you exactly one thing. As far as I can tell, maybe it tells you a little bit more. It allows you to estimate with about 50% uncertainty. And again, the issue is not the error is not the uh, value that is measured the mantissa. You know, it is the error bars. That's where the science comes in. I can measure something. Even I could go into Lee's lab and make some chemical reactions. And, you know, I'd probably make HO2 or, you know, whatever. I'd screw up everything. I, I joked that when I did biology, I would dissect a frog. The frog would live. I'm, I'm terrible at these wet sciences, but the error bars, that's where the scientist comes out. And I think unless you tell me what is your uh, way of doing a, what's called a blind analysis. Uh, here's an example. With my telescopes, I measure data. I measure data from the Big Bang the origin of the universe, the origin of the elements called the cosmic microwave background radiation. If I make an observation of the polarization, looking for waves of gravity that could indicate the presence of an early exponential phase of inflationary expansion, which is, you know, surely could garner many, many accolades and, and satiate our knowledge uh, of, of perhaps all of the uh, conjectures about things called the multiverse. Well, <clears throat> if I do that, and I make a claim, I have to show that that data is immune from dust. <laughs> but I also have to show that the data I got on a Tuesday is the same as the data I got on a Wednesday. And that the data I got when the telescope was slewing to the left at four degrees per second is the same as the one that slewed to the right at four degrees per second. That's Those... a critical... Sorry, yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt. I, I want to frame something here because this is almost getting what I was saying about Avi earlier. And also um, Eric, what Eric is saying is that when he says show us the data, it's almost like there's like he's kind of invoking some kind of conspiracy and stuff. And there's all these, you know, little green men. And what Brian is just really precisely is like, no, 
What we want to know is at this spot on Earth, at this time when this was happening, what was happening? Show us, show us, show us. So we've got a comparable data set, a control. Sorry to interrupt you, Brian, but I think it's really important that we, because we, we're both eye to eye on this. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think no, the point is that you have to tell me ahead of time. When I do an analysis, yeah. we have to show in a blind analysis what the error bar will get for a variety of different scenarios. Until you tell me, I might give you data, but until you tell me, and actually we don't even do it because it's a tremendous amount of work for us to process data in a way that another person could come in to understand calibration, flat fielding, spectral spectral line, uh, flat um, dark currents, all the things that go into just imaging. And imaging is simple compared to measuring the CMB, uh, just in terms of like these detectors have been around 40 years longer than, than the types of detectors that I'm working with. Um, I'm not saying it's easier or harder uh, globally or more important, but the bottom line is I have to, my student has to tell me how she's going to analyze the data and how she's going to assess the final error bar long before we unblind and let her see the results. So tell me, how could you mistakenly interpret in the image, which I don't think is really as probative as spectral data or radar data, whatever, but let's just stipulate it as, tell me how you're going to interpret to guard against, as Feynman said, you fooling yourself and you, everyone, I'm looking at you out there, you are the easiest person to fool. I'm happy to share data and I'll advocate for you about getting data out of the Galileo project. However, you have to do some legwork too. You can't say, oh, they're hiding it from me. Therefore, they're hiding something from everyone. No. Tell me what you're going to do with it. Tell me how you're going to prove yourself wrong. And so that I will say to you, you are my fellow scientist, even though you may not have a PhD. Okay. This was a live chat question. Someone wants to know, Lee, Tom Poliska, Tom Poleski asks, Lee, why hasn't your SETI experiment with spectrograph in the infrared been done by anyone yet? Because I happen to have a big mouth and I, all the stuff happening in the lab, I always talk about before I publish it, but the paper's almost finished. And when people said to me, you couldn't possibly get assembly number out of mass spec data, and we did, I think, but we can do it with a thing called NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, and infrared, and we've just done it and we've proved it works. So... I very much hope that once we get this out there, that we will put out enough um, data and, uh, and the algorithm required for people to start doing the experiment. Indeed, there are people who are going to be getting um, spectroscopy, uh, spectros spectroscopic data from out of the solar system, which I want to try, with, try this with. But we need to be cautious because the resolution is really so poor, there's limited amount of things we can do. But my dream would be to put a spectrometer an infrared spectrometer in, in orbit above Venus. There's a lot of, and maybe one in orbit, maybe in Titan, and we could do exactly that experiment. So it's a really good point. And literally, assembly theory was kind of invented last year. We published the paper, the experiment, the mass spec paper in May. We've been working on several theory papers and more experimental paper, and that's just, it's just coming. So yeah, it's really literally hot off the press. So it's not made up, it works. Mm -hmm. But I just need to literally get it into a preprint in publication. And I'm talking to various organizations that may or may not have lots of money and may or may not have lots of maybe private and public that are planning missions. And um, and I'm advocating very strongly for us to do that. Send, send a telescope that can do infrared spectroscopy all around the solar system and map the assemblyness of everything. Okay, this question comes from Vissen Cosman. This is to both of you. Ask all of your materialist guests to give one single example of something outside of consciousness. <clears throat> uh, I think there are <clears throat> great difficulties in doing that simply because we are 
the ghost in the machine that is defining a what consciousness is, what our experience is, what is materialistic or not. I should say that you know I'm much more, I'm much less materialistic than I assume Lee is. <clears throat> I know Lee is. I, I don't know so much about Kurt, but I'd love to know more. Uh, in that there are um, what what I usually talk about is, you know, are there is there permission to believe? Not not the proof. I said this on Lex's podcast. Like, I don't care if I believe in God. You know, like, does God need me? Does God care about Brian Keating? Who gives a crap? You know, um, you know, maybe, maybe if God believes in me, you know, if God exists. But the question of whether or not you, I'm a behaviorist, so I think that people manifest how they behave. Uh, the underlying uh, consciousness that they are internalized have that, that they have internalized is is manifest externally by their behaviors. So I look to things like religion in a very practical sense. Uh, can this give um, can this give community? Can this give a uh, purpose? Can this without necessarily accepting the reality as provable in a scientific context? I, I don't think you can prove or disprove. And I give upbraid my religious friends too. I say if you don't learn science, you're you're basically just you know kind of living in this in this bubble. If you don't learn, because science may actually bolster your faith. As I said, you know, on Lex's podcast, I've said other places, you know, what if the fact that we can perceive an infinite spectrum of colors, an infinite diversity of life, an infinite number of tastes and, you know, dimensionality of what could be otherwise. And the fact that the universe is extravagant is potentially a, a, a clue, a symbol, uh, a talisman. I'm not saying it's proof, of course, because I don't think there can be proof. But um, but I think those are sort of a, a non-materialistic. But again, it's materialistic in, in a reductionist sense because I do believe that you can practice it for your own benefit. You can you can glean wisdom from it. You can glean experience, community, charity, things that improve you. Stoicism. You know, I'm one of the few people I read the Christian Bible every day and the Jewish Bible every day. I read the Stoics, the ancient Greeks, the Romans. <clears throat> These are things that I think broaden your mind, whether you believe it has to be true or not. Um, so I'm more of a pragmatist, I would say, in terms of what consciousness things could not be explainable via science. I'm going to ask it one more time simply. So can you point to something that exists outside consciousness? Lee, what would you say? I, can, I, I would say there's lots of things that exist outside consciousness, but I think we have to do that. Doing that null experiment is hard, right? I think that the causal chain that gave, gave rise to so how chemistry... So I'm going to give the boring answer. But I think that um, the, the, the process of evolution in the universe and selection exists outside consciousness because it had to invent consciousness. I would be interested to know if computation is a fundamental thing in the universe that didn't need to go through consciousness. Um, that's an interesting question. But my, my simple answer is I think that a lot of un the universe exists outside of consciousness, but I will never really convincingly be able to prove it because I am a conscious entity. Just to make it clear, because I want to make sure this person doesn't write in the comments, say they equivocated. What is one example of something that is outside consciousness? I think understanding consciousness. I think the meta problem of, <clears throat> you know, what is it like to be a bat? How do you, how do you separate in the heart? You know, David Charles is coming on my show in a couple of weeks. I'll certainly ask him this question. Oh, you're uh, saying... Yeah, you're yeah, saying there's something beyond conscious comprehension intrinsically, right? Is that well, what? I, I think here's what the person is getting at. Let's imagine I say X is outside consciousness. Well, that X appears to you in your own consciousness. So it's not technically outside consciousness. Now you can think maybe it can exist besides me, outside of me, but 
even that itself is an idea within well, consciousness. The easy answer, right? And I think Brian, well, I mean, I, know, I think Brian might agree with this, is like, I'm not a terror. I think that um, the ground truth for quantum mechanics appears to be outside of consciousness because quantum mechanics wasn't constructed of conscious beings. And then we get all our, and it's shown by, you know, there are people who are closet, many worlds people, right? Uh, and they get really stuck. Another thing is that before, that, that I can imagine that there might be something outside of the universe that is entirely separate to this universe. I can imagine it, but I just, but I, there is something beyond my imagination because clearly what can it be, right? I mean, I could say, this is really like me saying, I can imagine all the set of prime numbers, but I can't tell you what the next one is. And that's really important. So I think there are things outside of, that are intrinsically outside of consciousness. And, and, um, and I think that we have to be humble because I, I think even if we think we could nail everything, I mean, I mean, actually, I'm I'm not religious, right? But I have a great deal of respect for uh, religious people. I do not like the approach that Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss take to people of, who have religion and say they're stupid because they're not. They have belief, and I have beliefs, and my beliefs are kind of a bit boring, but I do have beliefs. And one of the reasons why I get a buzz out of science is um I'm taking something in my belief box and putting it into my a fact box, and it's not that I'm trying to disprove God, but it's like I'm going through this process of actually understanding more about the universe, the more in awe of it, and the more I know there's more belief. And so I, I don't think we're ever going to get to the answer. So I think, of course, intrinsically, there must be things. I think, is this provable? I think we would need to get a proper philosopher who would take us through the thought processes and understanding how it set up the axioms and the argument. But I believe my crude answer would be probably almost yes, there's lots outside of our consciousness. Okay, this question comes from David, and it's directed toward you, Lee, but you can comment on it as well. Brian, in what sense does Lee think that we need new laws for life, like extra stuff at the fundamental level or some emergent higher level type of stuff? Well, um, I've already said it. I think that, so not new laws necessarily, but I think that I, well, I would say that we, we can get rid of some laws, get rid of the second law and account for it correctly. So I think there's a new law needed there. So we have to remove the second law. We have to deal with the fact that we require order at the beginning. Again, get rid of the second law, have time. So I, I don't think there's a, the nice thing about this is it's provable. It's going to be experimentally tractable. So I'm not saying we need to tear up all the rules. I'm just saying that Newtonian mechanics um, is um, not appropriate. And, and I think I would say something very, very crisp here. And I, I'm so, there's a very, I think Lee Smolin has the same idea that everything in the universe, every object and every event is unique because it has a unique place in the universe. As I said to the person we were talking about earlier, when, when I went to Austin, I flew to Austin. I've been to Austin before and I flew back to London. I've been to those places before, but I've, no, I've never been there before because the planet is in a different place in our solar system and our solar system is in a different part in space. And so, I think that we need to understand that time is not reversible and that physicists should stop be given a free get out of jail card allowing time travel because I think that's cheating causality. So I would say, answer that question is that we need to be clear about causation from quarks all the way up to, you know, from rocks to Rachmaninoff. So I think, yes, we need a new formulation of the laws, but it's not magic, it's just reframing. Brian? Well, I would say they're 
um, it's poetic. It's there's certain romanticism about what Lee's talking about. I think strictly speaking, you know, I don't, I always say, you know, cosmology is the one specialization of physics that doesn't require biology. You know, it's like almost everything else, you know, uh, to, to instantiate itself um, or, or perhaps the other way around. I didn't never make use of, when I teach my undergraduates, say you're going to learn thermodynamics, electromagnetism, nuclear physics, particle physics, but you're not going to learn anything about biophysics uh, or, or, you know, you'll even learn some chemistry, right? We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the formation of the chemical elements. But um, that being said, I don't think that there's anything um, to learn about uh, G minus two of the muon or of uh, sterile neutrinos or, you know, from a new interpretation that involves life. I think, you know, much, much like I, I joke about this, like string theory is the best theory ever made to describe problems in string theory. In other words, there'll be new technology, there'll be new um, you know, uh, the new new kind of tools uh, that could be used, new tactics to approach the, the problem, the essence of life. And don't forget, Erwin Schrodinger recently canceled, by the way. Did you hear about that? That Schrodinger has been canceled um, uh, finally uh, for, mm -hmm. for some uh, sexual improprieties uh, that are quite awful, if true. Uh, but the bottom line is, I, no, I don't think that to understand um, that there may be additional forces and fields, gauge bosons and so forth at the, in the standard model, there probably certainly are, I, I don't know. Um, and, uh, but, but I don't think that those will necessitate or require uh, uh, the you know, conceptions of life to be uh, emergent within them. So I, I push back to Brian slightly. I want to push for that. I agree with what Brian said, but I think he's kind of causation. Physics doesn't have causation at this in in the standard model in the core models we call it and that is a big error and i am really certain very strongly with some courage and humility that i think that we need to add that in and mm -hmm. i think brian correct me if i'm wrong because we were kind of left the ring now we're kind of like we've we've i don't know if it's a draw or there was a who went on point but i would say that really um, we do need causation at the beginning um then that is that that shouldn't be that shouldn't be because when I speak to Frank, we'll check about it. He just, he just, I mean, I was speaking to him about it and he was very, very good. He's very smart. He's a bit cheeky. He said, you know, you should do this. And some people get prizes for that. And I was like, it's just a prize, dude. Who cares? C tell me if causation is at the beginning. Right. And I couldn't there are push people him. People work on it. You know, I mean, there are people yes. that talk about the causal, you know, the structure. Joe Amagajo, Lee Smolin, Stefan Alexander is the going to be on soon on on this very podcast. So yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. Um, I would, uh, I would, you know, maybe, uh, maybe just just kind of rectify my comment by saying, I don't personally have much, you know, faith in say the Wolframian, which is the most kind of like lifelike, you know, at least in terms of complexity and rules and algorithmically uh, computable um, essence that that will, you know, make concrete astrophysical predictions that laws will emerge from it. Um, and and maybe it, it may be that, you know, understanding life allows us to understand artificial intelligence, which then allows us to make up new laws. I'm, I'm also kind of a AI minimalist, but but that's really a podcast for another time because uh, I would just wife, the wife and kids will come and get me soon, Kurt. So. Okay, so then this is the last one and it relates to what you said about causation. Okay, why is this, this is from Kamar 910. Why is there something rather than nothing? And Lee, when you say causation, so physicists obviously study causal structures like Brian mentioned, but those usually mean you're within the light cone and it's as simple as that, not this caused this. So when you have a model of causation, which I'm unsure how one could formulate that, how does that not lead to an infinite regress or either an uncaused cause at, at, at some point, especially if you consider time to be fundamental, uh, which ties into why is there something rather than nothing, which is Kamar's question. 
Yeah, let me give you two sentence summaries. So the theory paper I'm just finishing with Sarah right now actually tackles that very question. And, and it's to accept that there are there at the beginning, there is no causation. And but that causation gets baked in when when information can be stored about the past that can, can affect something differently in the future. And it's really as simple as that. And the only reason physicists have missed it is because they call screen it out. So all I'm asked, all I'm slightly asking for is to remove entropy, change it to assembly, have time going forward, and suddenly you do have causal cones. And those causal cones actually are limited by the light cone. And I think that Brian and I one day will be talking about assembly cosmology. And we'll be looking for those artifacts out there. But I think we're, we're a little bit far away from that. I need to prove the theory, do the experiments, get the data, show the error, convince peers. Because right now, it's just a kind of cool idea, a bit like lots of things in string theory. You need to get that mathematical structure and the reality. And I think we'll be able to. But we'll have to be held account on that. So it's a really good question. Um, but I'm pretty sure I know where it is, what we're doing. Right. I'm also going to re-ask you, Lee, so you can expound some more. But Brian has to go. So Brian, please. Uh, so again, the question from Kumar again is... is why is there uh, something rather than nothing? Okay. So what I thought Lee might say is the why questions are kind of anathema. Even though they're the most interesting questions and they're the most natural questions, my my toddler will ask me why, why, why. And of course, Lee, as a parent, Kurt doesn't know this yet because he's not a dad yet, but please God, there'll be a father soon, uh, Kurt, you and your lovely wife. But Lee knows the ultimate causal chain with an infinite series of why questions. Lee, how do we answer our kids? <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I just say, just tell them to, to look for themselves or to shut up asking the question, right? Yeah, the answer why, is why, 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 because I said so. Okay, that's but there the is a way where these regressions no, come, right? Because I said so. But look, you, you have a point, you have an origin, and you have a cause and effect. Now, the infinite regress isn't infinite. What happens? And this is, I just don't want to, this is the mechanism of selection. So what this person just Lee, asked, I'm sorry. You have to get, you have to, Brian has to go. And I'm going to talk to you about this. You can keep talking about that. But after Brian goes, I, I, I know what it's like to have a wife that wants yeah. you <laughs> gone immediately. No, no, no. I mean, well, I, mine I, too. I think, I think Lee, Lee is 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 uh, is correct. And I, and I do want to see this. And, and maybe I'll talk with Sarah about that when she comes on my show. But um, but ultimately, why questions are not necessarily part of what scientists should do. Why implies a meaning, and I think meaning, uh, you know, will bring up questions of you know teleological implications. Uh, and I, I don't mean that they're necessarily anathema. But usually, when people ask why, they mean how or what. Um, you know, how did how did the causal chain get established? Uh, those have great answers in, in in cosmology as well, except they have great problems, too, and great mysteries. And Lee alluded to the one three hours ago now almost, which was, you know, how did the whole thing get kicked off? And and, and what was the initial generation of, you know, a, a universe and, and so forth? You could ask, why is there a universe? Um, but I think that the question of 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 why First of all, it could be trivial. If if it didn't exist, we wouldn't be here asking why it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and uh, and and there's your whiskey. That's wonderful. I wish I could have some Scottish some Scottish coffee at this time of the day. Um, but uh, but in reality, in cosmology, as as Kurt and I, you and I talked. You know, I only I only have one regret when it comes to Kurt is that I was on his channel when it had the square root of the number of, of viewers that it does now, and it deserves the square of the number, if not more. Uh, but uh, but we talked about briefly, you know, what are the laws of physics? Are they so-called geodesically complete? Can we extrapolate the laws and chain of causality within the light cone when you have a singularity? And Lee mentioned singularity a few times. I happen to not to believe that there is a quantum theory of gravity. At least I don't believe it's as 
well motivated. I think physicists get distracted by it. I think that they're pursuing the theory of everything for the grandeur, the glory, the, the accolades that Einstein never lived up to. That's the very first paragraph of Michio Kaku's new book. Uh, you know, Einstein died with his unfinished symphony that he couldn't come up with a theory of everything. No, despite that being the name of this channel, I think the gut is almost you know being overlooked. The grand unified theory. We don't understand the, how the lower energy forces or the higher energy forces are unified. Let alone how all four are unified. And who, if not you know uh, one of us, has the temerity to say that there has to be a law of quantum gravity? What if there's not? So I'll channel my inner uh, you know Lee and, and and say you know I don't believe that there is quantum gravity because I want to inspire my colleagues to think harder about it. And we've been going about this for decades now with little signs of progress. Um, not to say to stop even string theory, which I have my problems with. Um, uh, but the, the alternative, as they say, you know, uh, the the string theory is the worst theory, except for all the others. Uh, that could be true according to Witten. Um, but but I think ultimately the why questions are the most interesting, but we should be careful not to ask for motivation. I think that evokes teleology, but, um, but also we should be very precise. We should answer all the how questions, as Galileo said, measure what is measurable and make measurable what is not yet so. And as experimentalists, Lee and I try to do that. Yeah, that's a great way to end it, put it. I agree. Thank you so much to the both of you. I appreciate it. And the audience does as well. My pleasure. Thank you, Kurt. And thank you, Lee. I can't wait to be uh, together with both of you guys at some point in the near future light cone. And all yeah, of the exactly. links. Yeah. And all of the links to Lee Cronin's and Brian Keating's work are in the description. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Good job. Thank you. So Lee, I know I was cutting you off, but I know Brian has to go. Did you want to ex yeah. expand on what you were saying before? Yeah, just very quickly. So this whole idea of re infinite regress doesn't have to happen. If you have an, if you have an origin, and you have some events that happen, like the, the, the events are random, but as soon as they start to, um, although they're random, as they go on in time, they become contingent because what happens in the future has some relationship to that in the past. And as long as you don't call screen it out. Now, when you start to then create an object that can then, that object can then actually interact on the infinite regress, go, go back in the loop, but not back to the beginning and give some knowledge from the future, if you like, to the past, um, then that infinite regress is not an infinite regress, it's just selection. So what that means is you have a series of processes where you make an object. So let's just say you've got some, um, some uh, chemistry occurring. You've got, let's say you have two different streams of chemistry and they're random, right? But then in each stream, so you've got stream A, random, stream B, random, and they're becoming less random, there's some structure. And then stream A is able to interact with stream B and to change the reaction um, so it can act back on itself with more efficiency. So that's so such that something. B can act back on itself? Yeah. And then you basically then, then you get all sorts of crazy things going on because then A and B become intertwined and mutually dependent. And then that goes up. And then this process of selection starts to transition. And I think that's the secret. But I haven't got there yet. Um, we have seen evidence of this in the laboratory and I think this is the answer to the origin of life. But we need to literally run the experiment. Put a heavy emphasis on selection. And I'm wondering, does selection in your model of life come prior to reproducing and variation? Yes. Sounds like variation was there, though, in the A and the B. Yes. So yes. variation yes. was first that produced selection, which then produced reproduction? Exactly. Yeah. When you have heterogeneity, um, then you can get selection, uh, and um, this kind of variation and, and things 
interacting and evolution can actually still occur on very long timescales in these in these on these on these infinite timelines if you like and what happens is that biology weaponizes evolution through through autonomous um reproduction because it like grabs all those causal chains and can combine them together in one object and the way it weaponizes is it basically replicates the genome stores information very efficiently from the environment and then adapts and it can basically produce lots of attempts at copying itself with slightly different causal structures. And so what I, what I see biology is, biology is like a, it creates evolution, which is an amplifier for selection. And all the universe is trying to do is be, become fitter. I see, I, I have, I'm having a difficult time understanding it. And I think it's because I don't know what definition of cause you're using to say that there was a first cause that came from something that was uncaused. So I think that's where my- Well, I'm just saying you've just got basically, is, let's think about symmetry breaking. So you've got a highly symmetrical system and then uh, things interact and time, because the thing is, this is where physicists get really stuck in that if you've got a time symmetric system, where does the symmetry breaking come from? You have to add something in, an imperfection, uh, 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 some heterogeneity, inhomogeneity. If you have time, you break that symmetry necessarily. So there's something really interesting that we don't understand about time, but um, but that's probably for another podcast. Sure, man. And, uh, and the door is open if you ever want to come back on and talk about time. Yeah, absolutely. Especially. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really, you were very patient with us. So mm. it's good because Brian, Brian is a really great debater. And it's, you know, I've got a lot of respect for him and what he's doing. And he's really, he's, his mission is very good. And the way he's being precise, I'm learning a lot from him. So it was a pleasure, honor indeed, to kind of be with both of you guys and talking. Yeah, so on, the honor is all mine, man. Thank you so much. All right. You have a nice day. See you Take later. care, man. And any notes that you have for me, just email me and we can Absolutely. We'll communicate there. And I'll I stay and talk to the audience for a little bit. Sorry. Impressed by the questions and also uh, that you really had to look up the, the assembly theory. So I'll, I'll ask you about it sometime. It's really good. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 